Hello everyone and welcome to the Hummus for Thought podcast. This is Joey speaking. So this episode was recorded on Monday, November the 4th, 2019. It was scheduled uh, about a month ago and we had decided on a date, myself and our guest, Dr. Andrew Arsan. And it just so happened that something like a week after uh, a date was set on October 17th, the revolution started in Lebanon. And since Dr. Andrew Arsan's book, uh, which is called Lebanon, a Country in Fragments, is obviously on Lebanon, we couldn't help ourselves but talk about the ongoing significance of the past three weeks or so. So I really hope you'll enjoy this conversation. And if you do, please don't hesitate to share it with your friends. Um, and, you know, tell us what you think. Thank you. this on November the 4th and it's it's quite interesting to be talking because we obviously we, we we plan to have this conversation before the recent uprising slash protest slash revolution slash however want to call it that started on October 17th and by a total coincidence and obviously I will link the essay in the show notes I wrote a review of your book um, sort of like a reflection a personal reflection uh, of what it meant for me to read it and I published it just a week before the everything happened. So the way I was thinking of how we can start this conversation is, uh, first, if you don't mind, obviously just introducing yourself and then uh, telling us a bit, um, just kind of to kick off the conversation, like what was your motivation behind writing this book? And uh, tie, it kind of tied into that question, like why did you choose the year 2005 to 2018 when it was published? Sure. Um, so... My name is uh, Andrew, oh, depending on who you're speaking to, Arsan or Arsan. Um, I'm a historian by training. I teach history at uh, Cambridge, um, mostly Middle Eastern history as well as global history of 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and Lebanon, uh, Country in Fragments, my second book, um, my first book was on uh, the Lebanese diaspora in French West Africa. Uh, so it, the second book, this book that we're talking about uh, and everything else that we're talking about is a bit of a departure for me because I was trained uh, to work on the early 20th century, on archives, uh, you know, the, the, the conventional stuff of the historical uh, discipline. And for me, uh, there was a personal need, a personal desire to write something about everything that I'd been living through as uh, a Lebanese person living uh, abroad, living in the diaspora, uh, traveling to Lebanon regularly uh, to see family, to see friends, to do research, uh, to try and make sense of everything that I'd seen and witnessed and lived through uh, in the years after 2005. Um, I mean, why 2005 uh, to 2018? Uh, the, the, the reasons are quite simple, really. Uh, it's quite prosaic. I left Lebanon in 1990 with my family. Uh, we lived in an area that had been uh, very badly affected by the inter-Christian fighting uh, late on in the Civil War, in the very last stages of the Civil War in 1989-1990. Uh, my parents had lived through uh, the Civil War that started in 1975. And then at that point, I think, we're just at a breaking point, completely exhausted uh, physically and uh, psychically by everything they'd lived through, and decided to leave for France like a lot of other uh, families uh, at the time or earlier in the war. Um, and so I actually didn't go back to Lebanon uh, by co complete coincidence for personal reasons between 1990 and 2005. And it was only in 2005, uh, after the, um, the uprising of that year, the, the Intifada of, of 2005, that my brother finally um, said, look, I mean, enough is enough. I'm just going to buy you a plane ticket and you're going to come with me and we're going to spend three weeks just seeing family and uh, going around. Um, and that was the start of everything. It rekindled my relationship with Lebanon. Uh, and I've been back every year uh, for a spell, apart from 2006, when the July war um, meant I had to cancel my trip um, and I couldn't make it. But basically the reasons for writing this book uh, and for starting in 2005 are as much personal as they are um, intellectual or disciplinary um, 
it just made deep, visceral, personal, emotional sense for me to, to write this book. Uh, and it helped my publisher was interested in it uh, and saw a market for it and was willing to commission it, um, which meant a lot and meant that I could work on this. Um, yeah. Well, that, that's quite perfect. I mean, the sort of unofficial theme of uh, the podcast and the blog and everything is like the personal is political. Mm-hmm. That was actually the first episode that, that I did with my co-host, Sarah, who's a Syrian writer and refugee in the States. But anyway, um, it's very interesting that it started in 2005. 2005 was also the first time I participated in any protest. I was 14 at the time. I didn't actually, I wouldn't say I wasn't necessarily politically savvy, but it was something that uh, quite a significant part of the population, as you know, took part in, and uh, we were part of it in our school and in our region. And so to fast forward, so we, as you said, so that between 2005-2018, a lot has happened in those 13 years that is really dizzying to be honest to kind of uh, even think about it like one of one of the many things that we have been reflecting on in the past three weeks or so and since october 17th uh because we're calling this like the october october 17th revolution um is how much we kind of took for i don't know if it's took for granted or maybe it was normalized like the violence was just so uh, diffused, you know, it wasn't 24-7 bombings like you might have um, by the Assad regime in Syria or anything like that. It was just from time to time you would have a escalation of violence, whether it's the car bombs, you know, the events, as uh, you know, the second chapter, uh, your second chapter co- uh, calls it, as that's how people call them, how it is. And that's, I think, how we even refer to the, the civil war sometimes, all of it, like just the events. Mm-hmm. It's incredible how much of it was both overwhelming while at the same time kind of there was never because probably there was never really any answer to these crimes to these uh, bouts of violences and everything so i guess my question is you you divide your book into the time of politics and the time of the everyday Mm. it sort of feels connected to ask you how did this come about because obviously many people usually most books that i've read on lebanon tend to focus on politics, tend to focus on, you know, these, the sectarianism, on the uh, sectarianism with the capital S, I guess you might call it, like how the system works, who are the main leaders, you know, the history of it. There's never really been, I mean, there are some uh, works, of course, but it's kind of relatively new, I think, to really talk about, as you call it, the time of the everyday. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason to... My intellectual rationale for for splitting the book into two parts, um, roughly even parts uh, in length, was really to to try and make sense of everything that you talked about, you know, the the dizzying uh, political upheavals of the last uh, 13, 14 years, uh, and to try and give a political narrative, uh, some kind of political structural context for people who knew Lebanon, but also people who maybe didn't know the country so well and wanted to familiarise themselves with Uh, its recent uh, political history with everything that's happened uh, in the years uh, since 2005. Uh, I think maybe I might have gone on a bit too much and (laughs) put in a bit too much detail for some people. Uh, It ended up mushrooming the narrative uh, in the first uh, three chapters of the book, um, just as I tried to make sense of of everything um, that has happened, uh, all the upheavals. um, But really, I I wanted to try and make sense of the ways in which uh, political and structural forces uh, do shape uh, everyday life um, and the way that feeling as though you live in a time of permanent crisis, um, a time of permanent precarity, uh, shapes um, one's life, shapes one's subjectivity, shapes one's sense of oneself and relationship to uh, immediate family, to friends, to work, to the world around you basically, and all the, all the choices that we make, you know, staying in Lebanon, looking for work in Lebanon, emigrating, whatever it might be, um, the, the, the way in which, you know, the, the situation, uh, to use that phrase that people use all the time, um, uh, determines to an extent people's, um, people's choices uh, and, the, and the ways in which uh, they're able to operate, the strategies uh, they devise to try and get through everyday life. Um, so you're talking about violence, and I was interested in uh, the way that we normalise uh, acts of overt violence, street violence, uh, car bombs, assassinations, and treat them almost as one of the mill, as part of the everyday, uh, because of, 
I guess, the psychic wounds that have accumulated uh, over decades of political violence, but also try and make sense of the, the, the smaller scale, more insidious micro-violences uh, of, of structural forces, um, the way that the particular economic system um, that the Lebanese live within uh, and are now trying to overthrow, the particular political system that the Lebanese live within and are now trying to overthrow, um, shape the conditions of possibility uh, and what kinds of alternative futures the Lebanese might be able to imagine within those structural forces. And, you know, the, 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 I guess the escape routes from those structures that they can try to, to envision and imagine and, and plot out. And I think that's what we're seeing now is a very concerted effort increasingly to try and plot out uh, some escape routes from the structures that have um, entrapped the Lebanese at least since the end of the civil war, uh, if not kind of you know, going back further. Um, the civil war itself and then the, the post-independence decades, the post-colonial decades. Um, so, so that was my choice, really, to try and make sense of the obvious kinds of violence that um, occupy the lives of the Lebanese, but also um, the more insidious, less obvious live, uh, types of violence that shape um, who we are and how we live uh, and what we can try to do to escape them. Yeah, and obviously a big... Um like a, a way to connect this is like your first chapter uh, in the second part sorry like so the fifth chapter uh, I have it open in front of me like on space in capital in contemporary Lebanon in which you basically if I remember it correctly you take a walk in downtown Beirut and you get you know obviously you get stopped along the way there are these uh, I don't know if you call them if we can call them checkpoints they're not really checkpoints but like there are so many areas of downtown Beirut that are most of it even you might say are completely inaccessible to most people and this is in stark contrast with uh in the past three weeks there's been a concerted effort and we have been seeing this whenever there are protests of significant uh intensity you have this um attempt to reclaim downtown beirut because you know that's el balad that's the the historical downtown which now is just called either downtown beirut or obviously solidaire uh, the private company uh, that, you know, owns quite a lot of it. And it's very interesting how whenever we speak about um, space in Lebanon, it's almost like we don't know how to... Um, like, it's almost like we're trying to, to, to catch something that's, that's immaterial. Like, we don't really know how to describe it because it's everywhere and yet nowhere at the same time. It has this duality to it that's very interesting and very exhausting if uh, because I lived in Beirut for some time and it's just, it's an extremely exhausting thing to be in and so I guess my question if I'm if I'm trying to actually formulate the question here um we we always speak about I mean uh, in your book there's quite a um, a heavy emphasis on time obviously the, the 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 title of the two chapters time of politics and time of the everyday the two parts sorry and you, you reference quite a few times that uh, this whole permanent present or like being permanently stuck in the present. And it's incredible to me how often I have seen this term in its different um, varieties. So one that I really like to use is called the protracted now. So it's just, you know, everything is in the now. And even if we talk about the future, we're actually just talking about the present. Even if we talk about the past, we're actually just talking about how it's affecting the present. And... I'm assuming, like, while you were writing this, that... Uh, so, I read, I read your book twice, and I tried to think of, like, what could have gone through your mind while you were writing this, because I was reading this as I was accustomizing myself to becoming part of the diaspora, de facto, anyway. I left in 2015 to do my studies, and now I'm sort of in between, and it's just very um, interesting to me, I guess, Um that you, you always, you always try, like you were talking about the macro picture and then you always try and talk about these as a, like I call them the nodes of resistance. So how, you know, migrant workers might live their lives in Lebanon, how can, how they are navigating reality and how this always, um, uh, represents something wider. And yet this something wider, you know, corruption, sectarianism, clientelism, patriarchy, whatever, all of these things together, how it's always so difficult to just even name it. Like the act of naming seems to be like a huge part of the of the of the challenge. And the past three weeks that I've seen, a lot of it is about naming. Like so many of the graffitis are. This is not solidaire. This is El Balad. 
like these are the spaces this, this is our city this is our country and how so yeah i guess the question is how how have you been reacting after writing this book um which ends in 2018 if i'm not mistaken how have you been reacting to the ongoing protests in the past three weeks like how do you wish like that your book uh, was published two years like in two years or something like is it something that uh, you feel um uh, changes things or maybe challenges things or uh, not really i guess it uh, would be my question yeah that's a great question i mean i'm trying to work on um reworking the epilogue to the book actually to try and bring it up to to date as much as i can i mean things are changing every day uh but i've got to get the epilogue into the publishers this week um and hopefully they're going to put out a, a second edition of the book in february which is pretty exciting um so yeah i guess i'm trying to make sense of everything from a distance from the diaspora everything that's happening and has been happening for the last um three and a bit weeks um now in lebanon um all across lebanon and i guess yeah if the question is um how does what's happened in the last three weeks the revolution that has uh uh, that started on, on the 17th of October. How has that changed things? I think it has. I mean, I think um, you were talking about space, about reclaiming space, about renaming and the politics of naming and reclaiming particular names for particular places. I think that's been one of the most um, poignant and moving things uh, for me, one of the most beautiful things about um, the protests, the demonstrations of the last um, three weeks is the way that demonstrators across Lebanon, particularly in Beirut, but elsewhere in Tripoli and Saida and Sour and um, Zor and other places, have reclaimed uh, public spaces for the public and tried to recreate another idea of community, which is less bidden, um, less beholden to ideas of community, a sect and sect as community. The idea that you know your political community and your social community can only be restricted to your uh, confessional peers, to people of your own sect, your own confession. Um, and I think there is a continuity there with uh, at least the very early stages of 2005, before it was kind of colonised and taken over by political parties and organisations. And also the protests that we saw in 2015, um, uh, in protest at um, the trash crisis that started that summer. And then also uh, the efforts of civil society to organise uh, in the wake of the trash crisis and to present electoral lists uh, for municipal and parliamentary elections. Um, so there, there are some continuities, definitely, in the kinds of programs that people are bringing to the table, in personnel, uh, in the vision of the future that people are bringing, uh, in the particular understanding of uh, technocracy and expertise that people are also talking about when they talk about wanting to have a government of experts, a government of uh, neutral experts uh, for Lebanon. Uh, but I think it does change things in other ways. Um, I mean, if I have to be completely honest... Um, I've been out of Lebanon for a couple of months. I was last there in May and then again in June. Um, and things felt pretty bleak back then. Um, I mean, the economic situation, I don't need to, to tell you, felt really kind of, um, yeah, very, very bleak. And people, you, you felt a kind of um, hopelessness and a kind of sense of really being stuck in a rut and not knowing how to get out of it and what people could do to get out of it. Um, and one thing that really struck me when I was there was a really prosaic, silly thing. We went to buy a present for a friend's uh, daughter, a friend's little girl. Um, and so we went to a mall and all the staff in all of the shops were college students or kids who couldn't afford to go to college, you know, 19, 20 year olds. Um, it felt like there was an entire generation that was basically just absent from the shops. The clientele, you know, I mean, the shops were pretty much empty. The few customers who were were either coming from abroad um, or, you know, in their 40s and 50s and 60s and up. And the staff were basically teenagers. And it just felt like there was this generational absence in the middle. Um, so I guess what has happened uh, in short, what has happened in the last few weeks, has taken me by surprise. And I'm pleased and overwhelmed that it's happened. But I think... Yeah, I, I I was kind of following all the economic news, um, you know, fear about the currency, um, discontent at taxes. And I guess I didn't see it coming, that the way that this has really kind of coalesced into something far bigger um, than what we saw in 2005 and what we saw in 2015, and potentially far more transformative. 
um, in the vision that it has of uh, the future? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I mentioned I, w- I was uh, one of the early organizers in 2015. Uh, actually, I stopped being an organizer because I left to do my studies. And the big, big difference between 2015 and now is that A, the decentralization, obviously the fact that Beirut isn't really even the star of the story here, it's more or less, you know, Tripoli, uh, and to, you know, uh, Nawati, Yesu, Saida, uh, parts of Alay, Yesu, and so on, uh, even uh, like down to Bintashbel and up to Akkar, we've seen protests as well. And the co- as you said, like the fact that it's coalescing is there, the, there have been, uh, you know, uh, television stations just interviewing people almost around the clock and on the streets. And you have basically themes that pop up as being so common. One is, of course, we are tired of being divided by sects. So that's the biggest, that's the big anti-sectarian element to it. And the other one is we are tired of having to migrate. And Lebanon has, uh, you know, as I think many people already know, has a massive diaspora. I think probably one of the biggest in the world uh, per capita or something, I don't know. But it has always had this um, one foot, like when you when you grow up, when I, I went to school in Lebanon, I did my undergrad studies in Lebanon, you always had one foot ready to leave at any point. And there was all, there's always this thing, kind of a joke, but not really a joke at the same time, that you know, you have to get two things, your degree and a foreign passport. That's what you get. You have to get in order to, to make it. Um, and I guess that in itself, while completely understandable, you know, myself, I was, I'm still part of it. Many of my friends are part of it. It also sort of creates a, a vicious cycle, in a sense, because we haven't really been... I'm not going to say we haven't been trying to change things, because that, that wouldn't be true. It's more that we kind of lost hope. Like we just got to the point where we do not know how things could change because whenever we try to do anything, the forces against us, so to speak, were just so overwhelming on all sides. You know, they came from the family, they came from the, you know, our friends in the in the region, they came from obviously the political class, the media and so on. And the reason why I was uh, so struck by your book and why it took me two reads, uh, before managing to actually write about it is that it just really felt like this this is it's like a biography that i would have written had had i lived in an alternative universe in a sense like if if i was uh you know if i probably was already in the diaspora maybe but also not no that's that's not accurate like you you're writing as someone who uh, sure. Okay, we uh, you, we you you mentioned that you're you're part of the diaspora, but it's also very much in tune with what thi- with how things were happening on the ground, and um, which is I think very difficult to do. So you know, congrats on that. And um, so this que- the the upcoming question, if you want, I'm always trying to formulate the question because obviously I'm I'm trying to just make this into a conversation. Um, how have you managed? Um, Again, I guess, again, in the past three weeks, but maybe especially since 2015, because so your book ends on, you know, Tirat Hedkom, the Youth Think Movement on Waste and the Lebanese Body Politic. That's the title of your uh, last chapter. And then there's the epilogue. That, like that episode, 2015, for me felt like this is the now or never moment. Like it's either we make it work now or we're screwed. Like that's really how it felt at the time. 2016, Beirut Medinati was also that again. And then the elections last year, that again. There's always this sense that we have to make it work now or else it's hopeless. And I'm wondering, like, have, do you, have you felt this um, while researching the book, speaking to people and everything, this sense of hopelessness and how it kind of, it creates a world on its own. It, like, kind of, it, it has its own language almost. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely uh, come up against that, that language of hopelessness and I felt both the hope that you were talking about, kind of, you know, the, the sense that, yeah, this is the moment, you know, this is the opening, this is the chink of light, um, this is when things have to happen. And then I guess the sadness, the disillusion when it doesn't happen, you know, and then uh, things return to normal and 
the political class reasserts itself in one way or another. Um, you know, the, the 2016 municipal elections were a case in point where, um, you know, uh, people closed ranks and very, very effectively played all the games that they know how to play um, against Beirut Medinati. And, and, um, um, but, I mean, I think, you know, that, that language of hopelessness is something I've come up against in talking to people about the book, uh, both when I was writing and then, you know, having, having written it. Um, I mean, I was talking to one, uh, somebody who's working on a PhD um, with me here at Cambridge, who's uh, Palestinian uh, from Lebanon, and talking to her about the epilogue to the book uh, and about what sort of note it might strike and kind of how optimistic or pessimistic it should be. She said, I don't think you're being pessimistic enough. Um, and, you know, another moment, um, I don't want to belabor the point, but kind of another moment, I was talking about the book at SOAS, um, and when I was writing it, and I guess I was talking about all the you know canny strategies that um, Lebanese people have to navigate um, the 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 system that they live in, um, you know the inventiveness, the the creativeness that people demonstrate in their everyday life. And somebody asked me a question, um, you know, I mean, do you think that they're 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 creative, um, or do you just think that they're numb? To the system that they live in and kind of you know they're, they're just anesthetized and just getting by because they have to get by um and it really struck me the the question the comment and, and stayed with me um but i think i mean what we're seeing now right is the fact that hopelessness um has its own political energy and can generate uh, a political language of change of reform of revolution and I don't think we're just seeing it in, in Lebanon. I mean, we're seeing it in, in Iraq as well. We're seeing it in Algeria. Um, we're seeing it in Latin America as well. I mean, there's a, there's a very... I don't want to sound too removed from the circumstances, but there's a very interesting moment here um, where, you know, it's not right-wing populism that's kind of manifesting itself um, and kind of capturing uh, and, and kind of capitalising on people's discontent. It's something else. It's another kind of political energy, um, another kind of dissatisfaction with uh, the the prevailing economic and political structures. Um, so, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is, out of hopelessness, there can be hope. Um, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I think that it was in Chile where I saw this uh, s- uh, sign like, "We are neither from the left nor the right. We are from below, and we're coming for those at the top." which I find quite uh, powerful. And in Lebanon, the, 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 the question that you said uh, you would get a lot, like how do people navigate hopelessness? And I think it's a very good answer that you know hopelessness can have its own hope in a sense. Um, the big question around that has always been, in my mind, probably like to a stereotypical extent, um, in terms of the media coverage that yes about you know Beirut being the party capital or, or whatever and this has always had a very very interesting even i think if i'm not mistaken in one of the reviews of your book uh i forget which website there was that famous image from 2006 of you know the women in the car uh passing through dahi or something and the the image supposedly was supposed to denote how disconnected some lebanese can be from the rest of lebanon uh, and I always found uh, this narrative very interesting because it never really felt true. Well, at the same time, it's not completely a lie. I'm not saying that there isn't a disconnect. But the way people have been dealing with trauma, essentially, because that's what it is for me, uh, whether the Civil War era trauma or the multiple traumas of the so-called post-war uh, or in some ways the trauma of not talking about the war, you know, the amnesia uh, thesis, as as I like to call it. There's something about how we deal with reality in Lebanon, or maybe if we're being optimistic about it, how we have been dealing with reality up until October 17th. Uh, not that everything is going to change, obviously, in three weeks, but it's definitely the beginning of something new, I think, or I hope anyway. There's definitely something about how how we're dealing how we had been dealing with reality, because in some ways it's like we're not denying it, but at the same time it's like we have um, lost any real capacity of dealing with it properly. Mm. If that makes sense. Um, I mean, 
when you were talking, I was thinking about, I don't know if you've seen this documentary, um, I forget the name of the artist who did it, but it's about um, rave culture in 80s Britain. It's called Everybody in the Place. Okay. Um, and, you know, it makes the argument that other people have made that, that uh, rave culture, the acid house, uh, emerged in um, 1980s Britain, um, really in response to the kind of sense of alienation that people had from, that young people had in particular from the society um, around them. You know, it arose in response to Thatcherism, um, to neoliberal kind of uh, monetarist policies of the time, unemployment, deindustrialization, urban blight. Um, and people kind of escaped into another kind of uh, protracted now, another kind of permanent present, which was nighttime and, and kind of, um, yeah, the, 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 these communities that can be created around uh, music and around kind of uh, euphoric um, release um, around music. Um, so I guess, you know, I mean, you could make the argument that um, you also see the same thing in in, um, in Lebanon, that, you know, in overt ways, maybe um, some forms of leisure in Lebanon are kind of resistance against the political system. But again, that in more subtle ways, in less explicit ways, they're just a way of uh, evading, uh, escaping um, structural forces. Um, they don't offer a solution necessarily, um, but they, they offer... A, a temporary kind of escape. Um, I don't know. I guess, I guess that's one way of looking at it. I mean, the other thing is that you know, for for you were talking about that two thousand and six uh, photo and the way in which it's interpreted. Um, I mean, I, I guess something that a lot of the foreign coverage of um, you know Beirut nightlife or uh, Lebanon as you know a party capital overlooks is the way in which, uh, at one level, a particular kind of nightlife and clubbing is is kind of inequality on display. It's, it's a way of, of displaying and affirming um, socioeconomic equality and inequality and the accumulation of capital by, by some people at the, very much to the expense and to the exclusion of, of others. So there's, there, you know, there's, there's lots of different levels to it and lots of different ways in which um, I think to interpret kind of, um, yeah, uh, night culture, kind of nocturnal culture, leisure culture, um, away from, you know, all the conventional glosses of, yeah, you know, guys in tight t-shirts and, and uh, women in tight dresses and everybody kind of, you know, partying under the stars or whatever the, the, the cliches are, you know, um, and superstar DJs like coming to, to play in, in Roman ruins or whatever it is. Um, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we once had a joke that uh, Tiesto, the DJ, came so often to Lebanon that he should just be given the nationality at this point. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, you, you hinted at this now, but there, there is this big argument that you make in the book. Um, and I have the quote here that basically that Lebanon is a microcosm of the contemporary world, a petri dish in which we can observe the microbial strains of late modernity. And uh, then there's, like, there's a whole paragraph that I would link to in the show notes as well. And, uh, and that's, that's obviously what inspired the title of, of my review, like uh, our painfully ordinary country. That there is something about uh, Lebanon where we keep on telling ourselves and we keep especially keep on telling other people. We love to say this to other people that Lebanon has this extraordinary thing about it. And yet, and I'm not and I don't mean to be downer. I'm not saying that there's nothing amazing about Lebanon. That's not really the point here. It's more that whenever we would, um, at least in my experience, try to... Uh, sell Lebanon, in a sense, to foreigners, especially Westerners, let's be honest, uh, we would glorify it without actually knowing what to say. Like, we, we, don't, we would uh, talk about it while at the same time not being entirely sure how to defend it, defend the craziness uh, inherent in some of, the, uh, some of the things that we've been talking about. And in many of the things that, you know, that... Uh, Parts of the UK and the US, for example, walk up to in the in the wake of, you know, Trump and Brexit haven't really been new in Lebanon, you know, fake news and, you know, uh, uh, disinformation, how facts can be so malleable and all of that, uh, as you you make a good case for it as well. And in, in, uh, in your book that Lebanon sort of has been doing this for you know, the whole post-war era, obviously during the civil war, they've been doing it anyway, but in the post-war era, that continued. 
and the privatization of space and I guess we might say the privatization of time is what the past three weeks for me especially have been about for me personally I'm, I'm not gonna say everyone is thinking about this in the same way there are people with more urgent um, urgent needs if you want people who are you know working class and so on uh, but it, it does strike me as very interesting maybe even disturbing I don't know I'm not sure how, how you feel about it how um, whenever we talk about Lebanon there are always these uh, the underground world of Lebanon that is really not really mentioned and that's why I really uh, appreciated you know your your um, your chapter I think the sixth chapter was you know Al-Akharin or the others you know or Lebanon's on Lebanon's refugees and migrant workers and I guess um, well, I wanted to get uh, my point. I always struggle to actually make a point in the end. <laughs> uh, have, ha, what, have you seen, have you been able to look at Lebanon differently after speaking to people who are usually ignored by, let's call it, discourse on Lebanon by the Lebanese in general? Uh, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, I know. Sorry. Uh, no, I'm just trying to, you know, uh, think through all of it. Um, I mean, to, to go to your last point first. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, talking to, um, domestic workers, um, or, uh, refugees, uh, displaced workers, um, because the Syrians that I spoke to, um, uh, were, both refugees and people who'd been engaged in cyclical uh, labor migration for you know uh, years before 2011 and before the Syrian revolution started and the and before the violence uh, started that uh, that you know consumed Syria and destroyed Syrian society. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it always gives you uh, a different perspective. Um, but also here, I mean, I think it's the 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 point where I want to acknowledge the work of other people because that chapter. Um, was the hardest for me to write because, uh, if I'm being honest, I didn't do kind of the, the ethno- ethnographic fieldwork um, that really would be required for that chapter um, in Palestinian communities or amongst Syrians or amongst domestic workers. Uh, and there, I really lent on the work of others um, who are really kind of um, opening up paths um, and trying to think about labour migration to Lebanon and refuge and displacement in Lebanon. Um, and the very precarious, very dark conditions that people live in, um, and the spaces of opportunity that they're able to open up even within those very precarious uh, conditions. Um, so, you know, um, earlier we were talking about public space and about leisure, um, and really uh, in the book I was trying to pick up on a lot of the new exciting uh, literature and scholarship on Lebanon by anthropologists, by geographers, by urban planners, um, by sociologists that has become much more attentive to these questions um, and much less interested in uh, examining, as you, you know, as you were talking about earlier, uh, the confessional uh, power sharing system, um, you know, in a quite rigid political science sort of way, um, where Lebanon is either kind of regarded as extraordinary or is one of a few cases of, you know, particular kind of sectarian power sharing alongside, I don't know, Northern Ireland, for example. Um, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this. I guess, yeah, I mean, to, to go back to that last point, absolutely, um, it does change your perspective. But I think, I mean, you've, you've alluded to this before. I mean, I guess I've always had a slightly askew uh, perspective on Lebanon, partly because I grew up abroad. Um, and so my memories of Lebanon are of the civil war, of being a young kid, really young kid, in the war. Um, but also because... Part of my family, um, my dad's family, is um, partly originally from Aleppo. And so kind of my grandfather was from Halab, from Aleppo. Um, and so I grew up in a family that was both deeply Lebanese, but also kind of in some ways not entirely Lebanese. And I've kind of at times felt that kind of deep, I don't know what you want to call it, xenophobia, ambiguity, ambivalence that uh, some Lebanese, Lebanese have towards Syrians, even kind of, you know, middle class, francophone, Christian people of Syrian descent who have Lebanese passports and think of themselves as Lebanese. So 
I guess I've always looked at it from a slightly different angle. I mean, I don't want to overdo it because I'm also kind of picking up on a lot of scholarship, a lot of work that other people have done. But um, yeah, there, there, there are different ways in which you can look at the country from a slightly odd, different angle um, and have that both that kind of deep emotional proximity um, and also a, a certain distance that I guess comes with, with living in diaspora. Um, and feeling the place is yours, but also not yours. It's home, but also definitely in lots of ways, not home. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense as well. And I guess we can um, wrap it up in a sense on the last uh, chapter, because obviously that's the most recent one, 2015 and the 2016 elections. Uh, we're seeing today... So to give some uh, background to those who don't know, I'll, I'll briefly mention that in 2016, there was the municipal elections in Beirut. And you had this independent uh, list called Beirut Madinati, Beirut My City. And they were up against, and they, you know, they were basically, uh, you know, engineers, architects, one movie director, one singer, you know, um, independent uh, people, uh, more or less uh, well known to a certain, to different extents. And they were up against pretty much the whole government. Like, pretty much every single one of them. Uh, Hezbollah wasn't part of it, but was, you know, supporting it. Uh, everyone else, from Hariri to, to I think, Jumblat, and with, you know, Lebanese forces, uh, the Free Patriotic Movement, Amal, they were all part of this Bierte, Beirutis. And yet, even with the whole... Um, weight of the state, they were still barely able to get a majority. And a huge part of it has been that, you know, people just don't vote. It's not something that, I think it's something like 20%, 30% of the population voted. Um, I'm not sure, actually. Yeah, I think turnout was pretty low. I can't remember what it was, but it was pretty low, particularly in municipal elections. It was elections something like 20, 30 or something. I'm not sure, but, and I think even in 2018 also, it was fairly low as well uh, during yep. the, the elections. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at is yeah. the events that have been happening since 2015 feel like it's been, it has put Lebanon, uh, or at least part of its politics, um, in a different trajectory that it might have gone had 2015 not happened, had the waste crisis and then the subsequent movement, and then, sorry, uh, Beirut Medinati in 2016 and so on. Had they not happened, I struggle to see how... Um, the ongoing uprising could have happened. But even, let's say, let's say it could have happened. I struggle to see how this hopelessness that turns into hope, how it could have happened without the mistakes of the past. Because 2015 was good, but at the same time, there were so many mistakes that were done within the movement. You know, too middle class, too Beirut-centric, etc., etc. And it feels like the mistakes that had happened back then uh, I'm not going to say we're completely immune to it now, but there is um, definitely a difference between how, for example, as they are called, you know, the men on the scooters, uh, usually working class men from the suburbs of Beirut. In 2015, they were treated with suspicion. In 2019, people were applauding them. And this like blew my mind. There were people, you know, from all walks of life, working class and middle class, whatever, when these guys were coming in, they were just being applauded and like there is this recognition that even if you are part of a sectarian political party which let's face it many people are if not officially but you know your family is or whatever there is there has to be a space for you there has to be something that has to be built with you but it has to be against those sectarian warlords and i feel that we're getting there i don't know i mean I don't want to sound too optimistic. That's that's such unlike me. Uh, but, you know, there are definitely things that are happening on the ground that objectively have not happened before. And it would simply be an act of sheer cynicism to deny that these things are positive developments. And so I guess for the first time, for <laughs> maybe for the first time for someone who studies Lebanon, is, well, how are you going to think now about good things that might happen, not just bad things that are happening all the time? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a really 
good question. Um, I mean, I think one one way to respond is to say that, you know, um, this moment, I was talking earlier about how unprecedented it is in lots of ways. Um, and you were talking about, you know, some of the mistakes that came about in, in 2015. But I think one of the things that has carried through from 2015 is um, the kind of sense of the, the carnivalesque, the celebratory, the kind of subversive current and kind of joyous current that runs through the demonstrations. And that that in itself gives you hope um, that uh, people can muster up so much energy um, and so much kind of uh, creativity um, um, in the face of um, political circumstances. Um, but the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, um, uh, you know, there are lots of ways in which looking at the history of Lebanon over the long durée, over the, over the long run, um, can make you uh, depressed. You know, if you look at the way in which Lebanon or, or the spaces, the regions that become Lebanon, in some ways are a case study for uh, the long-term effects of market relations and market structures on society and the way that they kind of, you know, pull at social relations and, and um, kind of distort them, right? Um, Lebanon's, a, a, you know, a great starting point for thinking about the, the, about that, you know, if you go back even to the 16th or 17th century, as I'm trying to do now, writing a history of um, the lands that become Lebanon, it becomes apparent just how deeply rooted some of the market structures um, that take that really, you know, come together in the 20th century are. Um, but the other thing is there are moments of contestation that we can look to and precedents that we can look to. I don't know if you know the work of um, Ziad Aboudish, who um, works on Jadalia, you know, is one of the um, co-editors, uh, part of that collective at Jadalia. But um, his PhD and his um, upcoming uh, first book looks at the uh, social um, mobilization in the first years of independence between 43 um, and 55, roughly. And the way that movements came together in those years, um, you know, to, um, to push for liberalization of trade union laws and labor laws, um, uh, to push for um, female suffrage, for women getting the vote, um, to push for nationalization of electricity provision and infrastructure. And, you know, historians and, and sociologists um, have a tendency to look at these movements as uh, less than successful in some ways, but Ziad um, Aboudish kind of shows the ways in which they, they were successful in some ways, you know, in creating a space in which trade unions could mobilize, even if maybe not as effectively as some would have wanted them to, um, where women could get the vote, even if uh, gender inequality still uh, remains uh, a systemic feature of Lebanese life um, and where uh, utility provision could be nationalised even, ev even if it was patchy even in the years before independence. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm saying, you know, that the picture isn't entirely black and white, but certainly, you know, you can look to precedents of successful mobilisation and of moments where um, le ordinary Lebanese people, men and women, have been able to come together to affect change. Um, and, you know... It wasn't perfect, but they were able to do something and they were able to kind of create something uh, in the face of um, opposition from the political class. Um, you know, thinking aloud and looking at what's happening at the minute, one thing that is striking, and it might change, but is the way that the political class is divided in its response in a way that it wasn't in 2015 or 2016. Um, you know, you were talking about the way that in the municipal elections in 2016, um, you know, most of the political parties um, came together in a single list to, you know, push away the threat of civil society in Beirut Medinati. Um, I mean, we're still in very early stages now, but it is striking that, you know, the political class isn't uh, quite as united um, and is openly squabbling um, about the way in which it should respond to everything that's been happening in the last three weeks. Uh, and that in itself kind of um, maybe gives you some hope that um, they won't be able to deploy the same sorts of resources that they have done in the past to um, push back against uh, popular mobilisation and to stifle uh, popular um, mobilisation. Um, and the other thing is kind of just the level of anger, the way that it is decentralised and not Beirut-centric, um, and the way that it you know, has affected most, if not all, regions of Lebanon. Um, and again, kind of, you know, um, to, to close, it's, it's again, I think, kind of uh, a sense of hopelessness, creating a sense of energy and a sense of 
uh, a desire for change because, you know, there are structural forces at play here that aren't just Lebanese. I mean, I think the Syrian civil war has affected people across Lebanon in lots of different ways. Um, you know, if you look at Tripoli, it's affected people in one way. If you look at the south or the southern ba- suburbs of, of Beirut, Dahye, again, it's affected people in another way. People, you know, have, you know, family members have gone off to fight in Syria, um, have returned traumatized, have not returned, um, where it's taken a, a toll on people's livelihoods, on people's everyday lives, on education, um, and has kind of come as an extra layer of pressure and stress and strain on top of all the kind of uh, economic pressures uh, that people are living with, um, you know, the poverty that people are living with that you were talking about and the inequality that people are living with and the patchy, if not, or if not entirely um, non-existent utility provision that people are living with. Um, so, I mean, I guess that has also kind of, you know, um, been something that's been steadily building in the years since 2015, 2016, um, the, you know, the, the, the effect, the deep kind of structural effects of the Syrian war uh, on Lebanon and the response of most politicians has simply been xenophobia and nativism, right, as you know, and just kind of, you know, like Jabron Basil kind of, yeah, let's send all these people back, let's ship them back to Syria. Um, and that's the way to relieve pressure on Lebanese society. But clearly that's not enough. And I think people across all communities and sects and regions know that it's not enough and that um, populist rhetoric and nativist, racist uh, rhetoric isn't enough to solve the very deep-rooted structural issues that Lebanon is facing, that we need more systemic change. And I think that's what um, has been manifesting in the last three weeks. Yeah, I quite agree. And I think that's that's quite an awesome way of uh, of ending the of wrapping it up, basically. Andrew, thank you so much for your time on this. Uh, thank you, Joey. It's been great talking to you. I really, really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.